The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. I had this idea in my head for the widow. Uh, I had the voice, really. I had Jean, the widow, um, of the title. I had her voice in my head, just not saying much, but it was a germ of an idea. Um, So I wrote nine chapters and the final chapter, the ending, and then put it away to come back to later, really. Things took off in Sri Lanka and uh, suddenly I didn't have as much spare time. But later on, when I took it out of the drawer, I thought, yeah, maybe this has got legs. I don't know. So I had a go. I joined a writing group in France and um, they were so encouraging. And I got to 10,000 words and I thought, I'm not sure I've got anything left to say, having only ever written journalistic uh, length pieces. So sort of, you know, between 500 and 2000 words. So to write 10,000 words um, was a new experience. And uh, I entered a competition and they said, yeah, you're shortlisted, uh, but you've got to finish the book. Ed, welcome back to The Writer Files. I am your humble host, Kelton Reed, wishing you pages, patience, and perseverance per usual. New York Times bestselling author Fiona Barton spoke to me about why so many famous journalists have turned to crime fiction, the power of the deadline, and her latest hit novel, Local Gone Missing. Fiona's the award-winning journalist and New York Times bestselling author of novels The Widow, The Child, and The Suspect, all three featuring journalist Kate Waters. Her latest thriller, Local Gone Missing, follows a new protagonist in Detective Elise King and follows the brewing changes of a small seaside town. Kirkus Reviews said of the book, Barton presents such an embarrassment of riches, layers and layers of unlovely revelations about people who seemed perfectly nice. At Bookpage wrote, Thanks to Barton's airtight plotting and impeccable characterization, a mini break by the sea will never seem relaxing again. In her past life, Fiona was a senior writer at the Daily Mail, a news editor at the Daily Telegraph, and chief reporter at the Mail on Sunday. She has trained and worked with journalists all over the world. In this file, Fiona and I discussed what it was like to be a chief reporter in the UK during the 90s and noughties, why crime reporters don't have time to write fiction, how she made the transition to best-selling novelist, why journalism is so akin to crime fiction, the definition of a duvet writer, how to beat procrastination, and a lot more. Stay calm and write on. 
Uh, don't forget, you can always support this show by heading to writerfiles.fm, or you can also sign up for email updates and other resources for writers. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click follow to automatically see new interviews in your podcatcher as soon as they're published and drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you tune in to help other writers find us. All right, we are back on The Writer Files and I am honored today to be joined by an esteemed guest. I have the New York Times bestselling author, Fiona Barton, is joining us today, and I can't wait to talk to you about all the things. Um, how are you doing today, and, and what's happening over on the other side of the pond? Well, it's all gone a bit coronation crazy, as you can imagine. There are paper crowns everywhere you look. Yes, big weekend in the UK, the coronation of King Charles III. I'm having a quieter moment down on the South Coast and uh, just I'm writing, I'm editing my next book. Uh, so, yeah, I've got my head burrowed into my laptop, really. Mm-hmm. Well, fantastic. Uh, I can't wait to talk about what you're working on next. And of course, all the things about coronation craze. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, um, I want to dig into your kind of superhero origins as a writer because um, I understand in a previous life, you were an award-winning um, reporter and journalist, uh, worked for some marquee titles. And and yeah, you were the chief reporter at the Mail on Sunday, which is like kind of a bit, you know, it's kind of like a very popular, I mean, maybe the most popular UK uh, newspaper, right? It was certainly um, up there. Yes, it was uh, a great newspaper to work for um, in those days. Yeah, I was uh, chief reporter back in the 90s and noughties, and uh, and then um, became news editor of the Daily Telegraph, and uh, and then uh, a writer, a feature writer on the Daily Mail before I stepped away from mainstream journalism. Yeah. So, I mean, I understand that you have gleaned quite a bit, obviously, from that time working as a reporter, um, and kind of use that to fuel your fiction. Um, but yeah, talk, talk a little bit about kind of how you made that career change, like what inspired you to, you know, because I understand you decided that you wanted to do some uh, volunteer work, and then you were working with exiled and, and threatened journalists. But yeah, talk a little bit about that, tra- that really interesting transition, and then how you came to fiction. Okay. And um, yeah, so I'd done about 30 years, 30 plus actually, years as a as a news reporter. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. Um, and news editor, I'd, I'd gone on to the desk. But um, there came a moment, uh, it might have been a moment of madness, um, but it didn't turn out that way, thank goodness, um, when I thought I need to do something different you know, it's, um, I've been doing the same thing for a long time. Um, and we, my husband and I talked about volunteering overseas, uh, when we retired, uh, in our sixties. And we just got to talking about why we're waiting, you know, we're in good health. We've got, uh, children who are old enough to be getting on with their own lives and parents who don't need us And so we thought, let's do it now. So both of us uh, gave up our jobs and uh, we went to Sri Lanka. Um, I was training journalists, uh, Tamil journalists mainly, um, in Sri Lanka, uh, a country where um, 
being a reporter is uh, one of the most dangerous um, career choices you can make. Um, people were being murdered and um, taken off the streets and uh, disappeared. So I went there and uh, and we went for two years and had a, a really, really life-changing time. And while I was there, I was invited to join uh, a Swedish organisation that trains journalists abroad um, to be one of their trainers. And so I leapt at the opportunity and started working with them, uh, the Folio Media Institute. And uh, we were working with journalists who were exiled um, or um, still working in country, but um, under the wire, as it were. So yes, I worked with journalists from Africa, Asia, uh, Eastern Europe. Um, it was um, it was a fantastic, um, humbling uh, experience. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, and so was it that uh, time then of kind of this big career change for you, and then of course you know kind of the, that mission statement. Um, of helping others and then it gave you the space and the time to kind of start working on this first uh, best-selling novel, your debut, The Widow. Yes, absolutely. It was. I mean, I don't know, you know, if you, where you've worked in, in, in the media, but um, a newspaper journalist in those days, it was a full-time, full-time job. Um, you know, it, there wasn't space really for me to do anything else. I had a family, I had two children. And so it was only when I stopped being a, a reporter that I could sort of take a breath really and think about uh, other things. I had uh, ideas in my head, but um, I'd never had the time really to get them down on on the, the keyboard. So that's when I did it. When I went to Sri Lanka, I had this idea in my head for the widow. Uh, I had the voice really. I had Jean the widow um, of the title, I had her voice in my head, just not saying much, but it was a germ of an idea. Um, so I wrote nine chapters and the final chapter, the ending, and then put it away to come back to later, really. Things took off in Sri Lanka and uh, suddenly I didn't have as much spare time. But later on, when I took it out of the drawer, I thought, yeah, maybe this has got legs. I don't know. So I had a go. I joined a writing group in France and um, they were so encouraging. And I got to 10,000 words and I thought, oh, I'm not sure I've got anything left to say, having only ever written journalistic uh, length pieces. So sort of, you know, between 500 and 2,000 words. So to write 10,000 words um, was a new experience. And uh, But I, on, I entered a competition and they said, yeah, you're shortlisted. Uh, but you've got to finish the book. Um, so uh, I then had to write another 70,000 words. <laughs> so, But I had a deadline, which is what, that's what I'd needed all along, um, having, hmm. you know, worked to deadlines all my working life. Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the arrow, mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, 
where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. So uh, yeah, I had a deadline and uh, I was working in Myanmar um, for six months uh, with journalists there setting up a uh, helping set up a journalism institute. And uh, that's when I did it. I had those six months and I sat and wrote every morning, early and every evening until late and finished it. Um, I'm not sure I would have done had I not had that kind of, you know, perfect storm of a deadline and an environment where, you know, I didn't have to go to the supermarket and, you know, do all the domestic stuff. So that was, um, I was lucky, very lucky. Interesting. So it was almost like a, um, a far flung writer's retreat for you. Um, yes, exactly that, so. Yeah. Exactly so. Interesting. Interesting. That's such a fascinating process. So you had the first nine chapters and then the last chapter, and then you kind of had done some workshopping, but then the, yeah, the, the, um, getting shortlisted forced that deadline and so you'd had this incubation phase it's almost like were you plotting it do you think you were plotting it in your head yeah before yeah. then finally sitting down to just you know obviously yeah. um I, I, I've had it cooking in my head if you like for a couple of years because uh, I'd started out with an idea that I wanted it all told in first person direct to the reader um I'd read a couple of really good books that had used that and I thought, yeah, that's, you know, it's so immediate. I loved it. And then, of course, you start writing it and you think, oh, gosh, this won't work because you need other <laughs> points of view. You need the detective who's also investigating. And I had a reporter um, in that first draft or second draft in, in which she was only there, really, so that the widow had somebody to talk to. And mm -hmm. um, but gradually the reporter's part in the book grew 
I think because I just felt so comfortable in her shoes, um, having, you know, it was my world. So um, she grew, she got her own chapters, a typical reporter, foot in the door. Um, and uh, and it, it, it did, it evolved um, and it needed to, um, you know, it was, it's all very well, you know, this sort of initial idea where you think, yeah, that's going to, that's going to be great. Um, but when you start writing it, you you suddenly find all the pitfalls, all the flaws. Um, and so, yeah, I needed time to think it through. Interesting. Well, you know, it, kind of as an international traveler, and you've, you've kind of lived like a life of international intrigue a little bit. But then, of course, you know, now you're writing psychological suspense and crime. I thought this article in uh, Crime Reads recently that mentioned it was interesting. It asked the question, you know, why, why do so many journalists uh, turn to careers in crime fiction? And that list is really, it's really a fascinating one because it is, it is a really great question. Um, they, you know, they listed Charles Dickens, Mark Twain, Ernest Hemingway, Tom Wolfe, Bram Stoker, which I didn't know, H.G. Wells, Joan, Joan Didion, George Orwell, Geraldine Brooks, and so on and so forth. The list goes on and on. But um, yeah, it's a great question. And of course... Oh, Kelton, I'm so sorry. Can I just stop you? There's a Spitfire yes. above my um, above my shed. Let me just shut the door. Hang on a sec. Oh, that's okay. There, <laughs> there's an airplane. I'm so sorry. They've taken chosen this moment to start doing practices for the coronation tomorrow. But it's such a noisy aeroplane. Um, <laughs> well, how, how better fitting. It, better if it isn't. Yes, and how fitting. Exactly. I, yes. I thought, Sorry. I thought, oh, no, they've they've found your secret hideout. <laughs> <laughs> They're buzzing me. No. Yeah. No. So, um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. There's an awful lot of uh, journalists writing who turn to crime. Better than turning to crime, I would say. But, um, <laughs> but they do – I think it's because we see – so many different aspects of human nature in our job, you know, especially if you're a news reporter, general news, um, where you're doing something different every week, meeting different people from all sorts of walks of life. Um, and particularly, I'm afraid, we see a lot of crime because crime is news. Um, you know, you don't have to, it's politics and crime, isn't it? Um, but uh, it's fascinating um, sitting in a in a courtroom and listening um, to the minutiae of the evidence uh, of the statements, the stuff that, of course, the reader, um, newspaper or um, media uh, audience don't get because you know you get weeks of it, uh, all the detail. But you're there, the reporter's there, listening to it all um, and, you know, and distilling it down into a, a, you know, a news story, the most important lines of the day. But you retain so much of it, you know, the, the way people talk and just, you know, how the person in the dock um, accused of a terrible crime just looks like the man next door or, you know, the the lad that sat, sat next to you on the bus on your way in. Um, it's that kind of uh, insight, I think, which probably 
I missed when I stopped being a reporter and uh, I enjoyed exploring as a, as a fiction writer. Yeah, that's fascinating um, that, you know, we've kind of come back to a, a, a renaissance in true crime, um, especially I think with the advent of podcasts, but it never really went anywhere, did it? I mean, it was always kind of like, if it bleeds, it leads, right? Um, in the 24-hour news cycle. And then, um, as you put it, you know, and so what that's done for a lot of us has made us like kind of armchair detectives. But uh, journalists really are detectives in a sense. So it probably wasn't a far stretch for you to then turn the lens and your protagonist now in the latest uh, Local Gone Missing, which is um, now available in trade paperback. Congratulations on that. Um, but yeah, talk, talk a little bit about the, the kind of the inspiration behind the latest and of course, um, some great blurbs here, but, um, yeah, maybe, maybe the genesis of, of how you've turned away from, um, your previous protagonist from the last three. Well, I, I, poor Kate, after three books, um, I felt she needed to lie down, to be honest. Um, she was, um, she'd been under the cosh for far too long. So I started looking, and I, I did work alongside um, a number of uh, detectives over the years as a reporter. And, um, you know, I always admired um, the work that they did, how meticulous it was. Um, but I, when I finished doing um, The Last, The Suspect uh, with Kate, I was thinking about um, what's it like if you're world is turned upside down by something that you haven't done. So I was looking at writing about a detective, but I didn't want them, you know, the, the flawed detective. I, I didn't really want to go down that route. But I wondered uh, what it would be like if your world was turned upside down by um, ill health, uh, which is, you know, n nobody's fault. It's just it's one of those things. It's an, an, an act of God, if you like. But uh, so um, I started looking into it and I found these wonderful women detectives uh, who have survived breast cancer. And I, uh, I talked to them about what it was like, you know, they were senior detectives, what it was like suddenly being felled by this. And then what was it like trying to get back to the person you were before? And I used quite a lot of that um, to inform Elise King, um, the detective inspector in Local Gone Missing. Um, we meet her um, when uh, she thought she had her life completely sorted out. She's in her 40s, mid-40s, and career woman had decided she didn't want children, had met someone who didn't either, um, and they had a great life together together. Uh, and she had everything planned. And she's that sort of woman as well. I mean, she's slightly OCD. Um, you know, she she likes an achievable aim. She likes a plan. And then uh, she finds a lump in, in one of her breasts. And uh, and it's, it's just everything is sort of pulled out from under her. Um, she has um, her partner's um, disappeared, gone off. Not He's not the person missing. <laughs> he's just dumped her, unfortunately. Um, but uh, she's ill at home and is full of self-doubt. She she doesn't think she can be the same detective she once was. Her memory isn't good because of the treatment she's had. Her physical fitness is low and, you know, she just doesn't feel herself anymore. 
Uh, luckily, she has a very nosy neighbour, uh, Ronnie, next door, who <laughs> is a librarian, uh, was a librarian, and is desperate. Is so thrilled that she's got a detective living next door. She's because uh, Elise has moved in, um, and is desperate to um, you know to hear all about it, about the work and everything. And then a local goes missing, uh, Charlie um, goes missing, and there's all sorts of other stuff happening in the town. Um, and people think, oh, he's just, you know, he's a bit of a character, drinks a bit, and he's perhaps just, you know, wandered off and he'll be back. But Elise is um, dragged unwillingly into hunting for him by Ronnie. Um, and then um, she's off duty, you know, she's on sick leave. But um, she does get involved and things take a, a dark twist, as they always do in these books. Um, and uh, it's <laughs> the story of her investigation with um, my favourite character, Ronnie, and, uh, and what she finds out about the town that she's moved into. It's interesting. And of course, um, congrats on the reception. Nita Prose, New York Times bestselling author, had called it a dark and twisty read. And USA Today had mentioned that readers will savor untangling the intricate web Barton weaves. And I thought Bookpage had mentioned that thanks to your airtight plotting and impeccable characterization, a mini break by the sea will never seem relaxing again. I don't really know how to feel about that. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I've ruined it for everybody. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Were you inspired by some of your own experiences in the latest? Um, obviously, you could have set a novel and you know anywhere in the world, given your world travels and, and some of your experiences of journalism and the things that you've seen. Um, was was there a, a, some seed of inspiration that um, you know uh, kind of maybe brought it a little bit closer to home for you? I guess so. I mean, the, the suspect most of it was um, set in uh, Bangkok, but. We, uh, my husband and I moved back from France. We were living in France and we moved back and we've settled um, on the south coast of England, um, sort of between Brighton and Portsmouth. And I'd, I'd never lived in a, in a seaside town before. And it was fascinating when we first arrived because it's all very, you know, sparkly sea and postcards and cafes selling fish and chips and things. But um, I started looking at the uh, the next door forums, sort of WhatsApp groups locally, and people <laughs> are really angry around here about all sorts of things. And it just got me thinking about it's those little things that that kind of that can make people seethe quietly until something happens. You know, they, it comes to the boil somehow. And it, it'll be over something small, you know, your fence is too high, 
Um, you know, mm. there's dog mess being left on the street. It's small, small things. And um, and I know from, you know, reading the papers, uh, you know, that people can get absolutely murderous um, over these things because they build and build. Mm. So I love that. Um, and it was handy sort of living on the spot <laughs> by the sea. <laughs> uh, so I could use the uh, I could use the scenery, etc. Um, so, yeah, and I wanted it to be a small town, so not a village, you know, not cosy crime, but a small town where 10,000 people live and it's small enough that people do know about each other. Maybe don't know each other, but know about each other. There's gossip and all of that kind of thing going on um, without repercussions, really. You may never meet that person you're gossiping about. So, yeah, there, there were various strands that I thought that could that could help make this, uh, you know, make the the suspense, if you like, the menace. <laughs> the menace. Um, well, talk to us a little bit about your writing process, if you could, before um, we wrap up here. I know we don't have much time left, but um, can you just describe kind of like your process? I know you've mentioned that you write in bed, but I, I wonder if that's still a th- is still a uh, thing that you do, or are you a morning writer? Are you an evening writer? How, how do you get um, kind of into a flow state? I'm afraid I am still a bed writer, a duvet <laughs> writer. Um, I, in fact, I was in bed writing this morning. Um, it's it's just it's so easy um, to uh, sit up in bed, have your first cup of tea in the morning, and start writing, and you don't have to have showers and get dressed and go and start up, you know, the the heater in the shed and all that kind of thing. You can just get <laughs> on with it. And uh, it's very comfortable. Uh, and uh, I can sit with the dog and two cats sitting on the bed with me. Uh, it's all very, all very lovely. Um, and it's a habit I got into in Myanmar, really, um, because I used to wake up very early and there was nowhere else to write, really, in the apartment I was living in. So I stayed in bed. And so I've kind of kept going with that. Hmm. I'm not in bed now. I'm uh, sitting <laughs> in <laughs> I'm sitting in my shed, in my garden. So in the afternoon, that's what I do. I, um, I have lunch and then I come out to the shed and I'll read what I've, been re- what I've been writing. I'll do research if I need to, you know, just kind of tidy things up. But mm-hmm. it's the morning when I do my proper writing. That's when mm. I have the most energy, the most well, the most energy, really. <laughs> but I've got fresh thoughts in my head in the morning. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, other people are much better at night when everything's quiet. But I don't need quiet. Um, you know, years on the road as a reporter, I've written everywhere, you know, <laughs> in the noisiest places in the world, probably. So I don't mind about noise. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, well, I want to ask you a quick fun one before we wrap up here. Of course, I'll mention your home base. There is FionaBartonAuthor.com, and there are links to social media there as well. The latest, of course, is Local Gone Missing, available in paperback um, now. And um, yeah, before we just wrap up with your final pearl of wisdom um, mm-hmm. to fellow writers, uh, a quick one. If you could have dinner with any author from any era to your favorite spot in the world, who would you take and where would you take them? Oh, gosh. Um, well, 
we found a fantastic, well, we didn't find it. Stanley Tucci found, uh, told us about a wonderful restaurant in, um, uh, on the Bay of Naples, uh, the Amalfi Coast, uh, in his series. We did a series about um, traveling through Italy and eating. So um, I would probably go there because it was spectacular. It, you know, it wasn't posh. Um, it wasn't a posh place. It was, um, <laughs> it, it kind of had a pier that went out into the sea. So you were sitting over the sea. Mm. Oh, fabulous. Anyway, that's not what you want to hear about. Um, and I would have their uh, beautiful pasta dish, uh, zucchini pasta. Oh, my gosh. I can still taste it. And who would I take? Oh, um, gosh, so many. <laughs> um, I would love to have had the opportunity to talk to um, Hilary Mantel, who um, mm. who died uh, far too early. Um, I'm a huge fan of her um, of her novels, uh, Wolf Hall, Bring Up the Bodies, mm. and uh, The Mirror and the Light. Uh, extraordinary writer, kind of invented a whole way of telling a story, and uh, I would love to have heard about her and Thomas Cromwell, Cromwell um, her her love affair with uh, Thomas Cromwell mm. all that time. Lovely. Um, well, I know you have to run. Maybe just your final blurb on how to persevere. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> will have their own way of doing this. I give myself a good talking to sometimes. But if you want to write something, you've got to do it. No point, you know, doing the housework first thinking I'll just do the laundry and then I'll sit down, try and just sit and, uh, and have a go and, um, and don't give up. I know it sounds simplistic, but it's so easy to say, oh, this is rubbish, I'm not going to do it anymore. Keep going. Um, if you believe in it, other people will too. Don't give up. Perfect way to wrap. Thank you so much, Fiona. We appreciate your time and uh, hopefully we can wrap again in the future. Best of luck with the latest. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us for this file. And if you're a fan of the show, simply head over to writerfiles.fm for more. That's writerfiles.fm. <laughs>